Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. I would say, first of all, Indonesia is probably one of the remaining opportunities in a huge market that's more or less homogeneous. A population of 270 million. Also, you have to look at the GDP per capita is around 4,000. And then GDP growth itself is about 5%. So I think you are hard-pressed to find any other country that matches these three very promising criteria. I would say that secondly, on the technology side, a high level of digitization has taken place and internet penetration has grown very quickly, especially during COVID. So we have about 70% internet penetration and the whole digital infrastructure is ready for companies to take advantage of them. So by that, I mean things like payments, logistics. And then I would say that the other factors that make this market attractive more for venture capital ecosystem. One is talent. I think you'll find the most number of entrepreneurs in Indonesia, in the Southeast Asia region. Number two is you can find follow-on capital for early stage investors. That's really important, right? Thirdly, maybe most importantly, you can find a local exit market. So the IDX is open for IPOs and we've had three IPOs in the last two years. So I think those are the most attractive factors when you think about Indonesia as an emerging market. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and we see the growth of China for the past two decades, spanning the tech giants of ByteDance, Alibaba, and Tencent. India and Indonesia are the next two candidates for the next breakout economies. Today, I have Helen Wong from AC Ventures to talk about Indonesia specifically, given that she has moved from an illustrious career as a venture capitalist in China to be in Indonesia to spark the next phase of growth. Helen, welcome to the show and great to speak to you given that we have worked on a deal in Indonesia recently, but we're not here to talk about that. Hi, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yes, and one interesting part of this whole conversation when I actually went through uh, your background, you have a very interesting career starting in China. So I want to ask, how did you start your career? Sure. I assume you're talking about my career in venture capital. After I started yes. working in investment banking, but my main career over the last 20 plus years is actually venture capital. I actually went to Silicon Valley after business school. I was at INSEAD in France, but I graduated in the year of the dot-com bubble. So the Silicon Valley was very exciting. And so I went over there to look for a job when I actually knew like hardly anybody. I knew like three people in the US. But it was such a crazy time that you just felt the excitement when you land in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I started networking and then I stumbled upon this partner who was starting a new venture capital firm, which was GGV Capital. At that time, the fund was not started yet, but it was more of an idea that had some interest specifically from Van Rock, which was a sponsor of the fund. 
And for those of you who don't know VanRock, it's a Rockefeller family venture fund, which invested in companies like Intel and Apple. And besides that, they had a very interested LP that was the Singapore government. Given my Singaporean status, they were keen to have me join them and help to raise the fund and then to join them as a, at that time as an investment associate. So that's how I started my career in venture capital. Wow. And this part of it is really interesting, right? Banking, then Silicon Valley, and then subsequently, I think you're also in Teaming Ventures and GGV Capital as well. Can you talk about your experience working in the venture capital space in China specifically and how does it shape the way you think about investing in these kind of emerging economies where the startup scene is just about to break out? Sure. Yeah, so I moved to Shanghai in 2005 with GGV Capital. Uh, that was the time we were starting out our Shanghai office. And at that time, China was emerging market for sure. I remember I had a bit of hesitancy at that time because I was moving from a very mature market, the Silicon Valley, to one which you basically couldn't really, there was no database like Crunchbase to find which companies have been funded. You could put all the VCs in one room and, and founders were very raw and they didn't really know what venture capital was about. But I think that it was a very wonderful experience. Basically, I saw probably the golden era of China. First, the whole internet penetration grew when I arrived. This was 05. There was less than 100 million users, right, in a country of 1.3 billion. And then also the whole venture capital scene, as I mentioned, was very small. So everybody knew everybody. And then also the, the macro side, right, you could basically put somebody's annual salary in your pocket. The average GDP per capita was 2000 Now, fast forward to today, where I think average GDP is about 12000 In Shanghai, it's like 20-something thousand. So you can see like the tremendous growth that we've experienced in the past 17 years that I was there. And the whole venture capital scene has also changed tremendously, right? So in the beginning, we had a lot of copycats. So we invested, for example, Alibaba, at that time, it was maybe looking to eBay and also then PayPal. And then we also invested, I like the deal, Tuto, which was uh, basically actually started before YouTube, but around the same time, I would say, and uh, was basically modeled after YouTube. We had a lot of uh, learnings from Silicon Valley at that time. But over the years, China became a place for innovation. We saw companies like TikTok, companies like YY earlier in the PC internet era, Basically, having no comparables around the world. Maybe they were inspired by some global players, but very much became their own innovative products, right? So that was a tremendous change. And also, you see founders like Jack Ma, like Wang Xing from Meituan, that I knew from when they were basically not that, how should I say, they were already quite well-known, but not as godlike as they are today. And I've seen them really grow and really become like the icons that they are today. Mm. And I think they are now like the legends as well in the, in the China tech scene. It's interesting you talk about the Tudo uh, situation where they also merged with Yuku and then subsequently got acquired by Baidu. One interesting part of that whole journey looking at the China space, like for example, when you see venture capital and angel investment today, is it more local venture capital, whereas in the early days, which was more foreign venture capital entering into China? Uh, yes, to a large extent, that's correct. So in the beginning, there were a lot of venture capitalists like me from Singapore, from Hong Kong and Taiwan. 
the locals were mostly, I would say, the returnees. And the capital was coming from Japan, U.S. Actually, U.S. not even, not that much. I remember there was like a contingent of Silicon Valley VCs visiting China at that time. And then some stayed and formed franchise funds, like the Matrix of the World, Sequoia of the World. But then there was also room for homegrown brands. So like, for example, Chiming is a made-in-China brand. And then GGB was a cross-border U.S.-China. So I think that was a nascent market at that time. And then over the years, there's more and more, I would say, local R&B funds and also driven by the local governments wanting to develop the venture capital scene. And so, yeah, there has been a big change. I would say the, the biggest change in the last few years is that the government actually has a lot of, I would say, not, not really mandates, but uh, gender, right? So they want to promote the deep tech industries. And so a lot of government local funds were formed. And so that's a kind of a different playbook because they have different agenda is not maybe that financially driven and the listings will likely be on the local Asia market. You are talking about something like the Little Giants program, which was well documented by Bloomberg. I think it's also the playbook that Singapore and even Israel has undertaken earlier for their own technology ecosystem. Given your illustrious career, what interesting lessons can you share with my audience about your career journey? Sure. I would say starting out in the industry, try to learn from the best. I think I benefited a lot learning from Benrock at that time. They had two members on the investment committee. And then I would say work with the best. I was very fortunate. My partners at both Chimi and GGV were among the best. I think you, you learn a lot just working alongside very good uh, investors. And then I would say try to be the best. Mm. Try to be among the leaders in the industry, right? So I think Having been in, in the U.S., in Silicon Valley, and in China, it really helped me a lot to, in, in terms of thinking about how companies scale, I think that in Southeast Asia, one of the problems is that a lot of people haven't seen large scale. The competitiveness of big markets is also a very different challenge. And so I think if you can learn from the best, work with the best, and try to be the best. The other thing I would say is be prepared to take risk. So I think that in a very mature market, like we found in Silicon Valley, it was harder to be the best. But when we went to China, we had this chance really to make a difference. And also as a young VC, we were able to take on much more bigger responsibilities than if we were staying in the Silicon Valley. A lot of people just said that here, like picking up the scraps from Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins in those days. Yeah, so I think be prepared to take some risk that might help you a lot in your career. I wouldn't say that because on hindsight, I think the Yoshisan's investment in Alibaba turned out pretty well for him. <laughs> yeah, that. for sure. That's also because he took risk and went to a new market. So that's yeah. my point. Yeah. That comes to the main subject of the day. I want to talk about AC Ventures and also investing into Indonesia because this is one of the most interesting economies in Southeast Asia. I think the to jumpstart this, can you talk about the inspiration behind AC Ventures and what made you decide to come on board as a managing partner? Yeah, sure. So AC Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm focused on Southeast Asia more broadly, but with a core strength in Indonesia. I think I can talk a bit about Indonesia. I think you, you're going to ask me later. So I'll keep that for the moment. But I would say that the inspiration behind AC Ventures basically is a merger of two funds, Agaiti and Convergence, basically partners that had the same investment thesis about investing in early stage in technology companies and felt that it would be good to combine forces. 
why did I come on board? I felt that when I was looking at Southeast Asia, Indonesia was a very important market. So I think we, first of all, have a shared vision on where we want to put our resources, where we want to focus on. Uh, secondly, I felt that the organization was still young. Basically, we are looking, we're raising our second flagship fund at the moment. So I feel that I can have a bigger contribution and impact at this point in time. And certainly, I would say that we have pretty complementary skill sets among the different partners. So two of my partners are local Indonesians, especially you might know Pandu, who has very good relationships with the local government. And so I believe that it is good to have complementary skill sets among your partners. I can bring more the investment experience and also the China experience, but I like to have people who can sort of watch my back and sort of compliment me on areas that I do not have a strength. I'm quite curious, does AC Ventures have a fixed investment thesis or maybe it's variable because of the market is also changing very, very quickly in Indonesia? Yeah, so first of all, we focus largely on technology companies because mm. we believe that this is the age of digitization and using digitization and technology, we can scale companies and really solve problems and create value. And then secondly, we believe in early stage where we can capture the best value. And then we do follow on on high conviction bets, the companies that we like. Yeah, so I think that broadly the investment thesis is that we do we are a bit more sector agnostic because we're already geographically focused. So we do invest across e-commerce, B2B, fintech, as well as increasingly we're looking at sustainability. Hmm. This is interesting. So the one question I always have, and I talk to a lot of the US investors or even investors from all over the world, and how do you explain the market opportunity of investing into Indonesia to the investors all over the world who are actually looking for opportunities in emerging markets such as Indonesia? Yeah, I would say, first of all, Indonesia is probably one of the remaining opportunities in a huge market that's more, more or less homogeneous. First of all, a population of 270 million. I think also you have to look at the GDP per capita is around 4,000. And then GDP growth itself, right? It's about 5%. So I think you are hard-pressed to find any other country that matches these three very promising criteria. I would say that secondly, on the technology side, a high level of digitization has taken place and internet penetration has grown very quickly, especially during COVID. So we are about 70% internet penetration and the whole digital infrastructure is ready for companies to take advantage of them. So by that, I mean things like payments, logistics, right? And then I would say that there are other factors that make this market attractive, uh, more for venture capital ecosystem, right? One is talent. I think you'll find the most number of entrepreneurs in Indonesia, in the Southeast Asia region. Number two is you can find follow-on capital for early stage investors. That's really important, right? Thirdly, maybe most importantly, you can find a local exit market. Um, so the IDX is open for IPOs and we've had three IPOs in the last two years. Yeah, so I think those are the most attractive factors when you think about Indonesia as an emerging market. Mm. What are the differences between the Indonesian market today as compared to, say, the Chinese market maybe 20 years back when you first landed in Shanghai or even like the Indian market now in the last decade? Indonesia today is probably more mature than China 20 years back. So 2003, 
there were less than 100 million users, so 6% internet penetration roughly. India, in 10 years ago, had about 12% internet penetration, but Indonesia today, 70%. You know, there are, of course, differences. China went through a PC internet era before we then had the mobile internet era. So I think that in terms of the sophistication of the users, in terms of the the growth of e-commerce and things like that, tremendous value creation in those areas in, in China. And But I think Indonesia is more of a mobile first. They did not go through the PC internet. I think India is like a mobile-only digital economy, which is also very interesting. I would say that Indonesia sometimes seems to me to be somewhere between China and India. Yeah, because, you know, if you look at the GDP per capita, it's also in the middle, right? So in India, it seems like a very big market. In fact, population is now bigger than China. But a lot of people actually say that in India, you're making money from like the top 30 million at most 100 million, right? And there's like 500 million or half the population that you can just discount because they are too poor to afford anything, right? Whereas in Indonesia, it's a bit better, have a larger, maybe middle class. And then for China, it's completely different story because China is now relatively affluent, right? So, so I would say that besides internet penetration, you also have to look at a GDP per capita. Ultimately, where are you making money? How are you creating you know, value for these users? And what are they willing to pay for the value? Mm. I think there's this, just like what you mentioned about India, like the 100 million, that which is really the actual addressable market for that uh, population. But let's say when we look at, say, some a country like Indonesia, is the market actually expanded or, and also is, does, is, are there growth coming from, say, second tier cities like Bandung? One interesting part of China, I think a lot of people do not really appreciate, it started with the Beishan Guangsheng part and then now it spreads out into all the second tier cities and then going third tier fourth tier even to six tiers as well so that there is this penetration that can grow do you see the same kind of growth that actually goes into the indonesia market yeah for sure for sure yeah i would say that when a lot of startups start their journey they would start with jakarta the greater jakarta area and then but we've seen in recent years a lot of them going to second tier cities so i think from urban to i would say suburban you know not sure some of them can go to the rural areas, but I think a lot of them are still pr- probably focused on the urban and suburban areas. And I'll say that, yes, exactly like the China journey. But I think that there is a big difference in that China has 100 cities with 1 million population, right? Indonesia probably has five. So the scale is, is still a little bit different and the density is also a bit different. There are things that you can copy and there are things that are probably unique to China. You have already talked about that AC Ventures funds the early stage companies. I think one interesting question I probably would like to ask is what are the kind of stages of companies in their life cycle where at this stage of Indonesia's growth is where VCs are focusing on? Or do you see the possibility or even like in China where people will start to end up building more sophistication like growth funds? Series B and C is rather rare in the Southeast Asia market, even for now. Sure, sure. So I would say that where we see the market right now is that for us, we're focused on the early stage. That means like sometimes just a team with no product and then all the way to a company with a few million monthly revenues. But this may be like the Series A that they're raising, right? So that's that's the range that we invest in in terms of series. And then we feel like this is a very good place to 
play because a lot of the bigger funds can come in later stage and also they bring their brand, they bring their lessons learned from other parts of the world. But they lack local access to the early stage entrepreneurs. They don't have a team on the ground often, you know, so we are the ones that are able to source these founders and also we are the ones that are able to help these founders in the local market, right? So be it connecting them with the regulators and also connecting them with some of the big conglomerates, many of which are our LPs. So I think we bring that local help and then a lot of the other funds can bring the later stage help. I mean, having said that, there are, I understand there's growth funds that have been set up by some of our peers and I wouldn't rule out that one day we'll set one up as well. I just think that it's at, at this moment in time, playing in the early stage, it fits us very well. But of course, often venture capital funds want to have like the opportunity to take advantage of also later stage investments because they know the market so well. And especially when in this environment where we see valuations of some of the more mature companies coming down drastically, it actually creates opportunity for us as well. Yeah, But for now, we're we are sticking to the early stage. Mm. Speaking about competitive edge here, what's the one thing you know about being a venture capitalist in Southeast Asia or specifically Indonesia that not many people know? So I would say it's not so much that not many people know, but a lot of LPs ask us this question, which is there's no DPI or like a low DPI versus more mature markets. So they are like very hesitant on Southeast Asia, which is a big paradox to me because if you look at the macro, right, around the world, Indonesia and Southeast Asia is having tremendous growth and pretty moderate inflation. And then I think that Southeast Asia has not been in a better place ever. So in terms of like the US and China geopolitical situation, you see supply chains moving to this part of the world and also COVID accelerated that. So I feel like the underlying fundamentals are looking quite good for Southeast Asia. But Mm -hmm. it's a paradox because, of course, historically, the market being so early, there hasn't been a lot of exits. But in the last two years, there has been very encouraging signs. So as I mentioned, the go-to, the Blibli, Bukalapa, IDX, and also see and grab on the US stock market, exits will come. It's a bit similar to when I first went to China. I felt that China, a lot of corruption, a lot of crooks there. That's the impression people have of China when in the early days. Then a lot of employees in Chinese tech companies did not feel like working at a tech startup was something to be very proud of, right? Until like the Baidu IPO and then they had such a great IPO that everybody like just like their eyes were open and they found, oh, they, you can create so much value. So I feel like Southeast Asia is a bit of a neglected market. Do you think that actually that perception of being a neglected market is actually stems off from the way investors say from the US looked at China? They see a homogenous big market, speaks the same language. I I think even for me, I can tell them China has different dialect groups, so don't assume the same language. And then the same currency, similar to India as well, even though it's ethnically at yeah, about 50 over different ethnic groups in India. The way they have been perceiving Southeast Asia is more of just six different countries, but generically the largest block of that growth is actually Indonesia. Yes, I, th- I agree with you. First of all, I think that there's no probably better market than China, which is so homogeneous and then had such great economic growth over the last two decades or so. But China is also going through a lot of headwinds. So I think a lot of LPs and even GPs are trying to adjust to the the changes. But 
looking aside from China, Asia is on the rise for sure. Where do you put your money? Yes, you can look at India. But I would say the other big market that you should not ignore is Indonesia. Mm. Indonesia is, I would say, propelling the growth of Southeast Asia to a large extent. Mm. From your experience in China, I also want to highlight the fact that you also led investments into Akulaku and Red Dolls. And also, I mean, you have already talked about serving on the board too, though you, you could, but also Mobike as well. One curious f- question I would have is, what are the differences that you've seen in the startup teams and founders in Indonesia compared to, say, China, where you have a huge experience in even like seeing legends like Jack Ma and Wang Xing now have grown into their current stature as well? Sure. I would say that in China, there has been tremendous growth. And so the founders really had great personal growth. You see more serial entrepreneurs in China. So a lot of founders we meet are on their third startup. Whereas in Southeast Asia, I think a lot of them are still on their first and most second startup. But we do see that the maturing of the ecosystem in Southeast Asia as well. So for example, recently I'm talking to some founders that are coming out from the big tech companies where they held very high level management positions. So I think that is just shows the maturity of the whole ecosystem. The other big difference I would say is that the Chinese are very good at being fast followers and they are very good at iterating on their products. They have developed very strong SOPs whereby they take the learnings, they would automate it, they would make very smart algorithms around it so that they can really scale. And I think that um, Southeast Asia founders can probably learn from the Chinese in this aspect. They can really accelerate their growth. I find that when I talk to founders in the Southeast Asia market, they tend to look to China for inspiration because it is clearer for them how they can adapt what innovations in China into Indonesia or even in India as well. Whereas the old playbook was actually just to look to the US, which I don't think is adaptable in this region. Am I right in saying that there there seems to be this wave of even founders looking to China for inspiration? Yes, I would say that for the past 10 years or so, there have been a lot of founders looking more to China for inspiration. But I would say that there's a difference between the way the US founders start to create their products because the way they think about it is more like they want to build global products from day one. And they've done so well in products like Facebook or Instagram. I think the Chinese tend to make products that are more localized and also they depend maybe on higher level of operations. They call it operations. So whether it's like on the ground troops to educate the users or to acquire merchants and things like that. So I think that the Chinese are pretty good at it. Of course, there have been the breakthrough global products as well, like TikTok, right? Which previous firm was very proud to invest in musically that became TikTok. So I think that that would be the key difference. But I also see the founders in Indonesia looking to India for inspiration. So in the B2B side of things, we do see a lot of founders looking to India because there have been a lot of B2B unicorns in India. And I think that is because the supply chain is more fragmented or even broken right? in Indonesia, similar to India. Whereas in China, the supply chain is so efficient, you can hardly squeeze any margins out. So that that difference in the supply chain makes the business models coming out from these countries, at least on the B2B side, a bit different. Mm. So one curious fact is what kind of qualities you look in startups before investing in them? Is it the product market fit? Is it the 
market opportunity or everything else, like which everyone always says is the teams themselves? Yeah, sure. First of all, the founders, we look at, do they have any insights in the uh, industries that they are looking to target, right? That are unique. Do you have the vision? Do you have the insights? Is your background suitable to what you're trying to do? That what I would think is number one. And number two is, are you a fast learner? So if things don't go well, can you, can you adjust, right? Can you adapt? I think that is also one of the very important things for a founder. Number three, I would say is leadership skills, because you have to attract talent. Can you nurture talent? Can you retain talent? I think that is very important. And are you, are you generous in your ESOP? Are you someone that just wants to have it all yourself? And then I would say a fourth trait I find in the best founders, they have a bit of stubbornness. They have a, this determination that they will bring things to successful outcome, no matter what. That is a, is a quality that I also look for when I assess a founder. And then I would say the team, the team is good to have like maybe two to three founders because you, you need people who complement each other, right? So usually one person is in charge of the product, one person who's in charge of the tech, or maybe CEO driving more the sales. So I think that is good, you know, three legs to a stool, right? But having said that, I always look to the founder because the founder is the one that we, you know, usually pulls the team together. You have spoken earlier about AC Ventures also help to match the founders to the regulators. I mean, understanding how they are helping to them to align towards their company goals. What are the support that you also provide to these founders for the startups as well? Sure. So first of all, as an investor, I would sit on the board, usually in the companies that I invest in. And so help them on things like strategy, on ESOP, on hiring. So general corporate governance. And then at AC Ventures, we have a big value creation team headed by a former entrepreneur. And we have five pillars of value add that we focus on. One is recruitment, which is very important because most of these startups are very early. The other one would be government relations. So we help connect with regulators and also share with them what we see at some policy changes, for example. The third one, I would say, is PR and marketing. And then the fourth would be fundraising, which is not a key area that we focus on. And the fifth would be business development. So we help mm. with some of these conglomerates, many of which are LPs as well. So what is the mental model then for your in thinking about the valuation of a company when you invest in them? Because in early stage, investing valuations tend to be an art rather than a science. Yes, for sure. So I think in venture capital, the valuation is not as big a determinant as for private equity. For example, in an early stage company, if we invest in 20 million or 30 million, it's not going to make a di big difference if the company turns out to be a billion, right? So, uh, and we do look for these big outcomes, right? Because that's the, the power law. It works very well in venture capital. But I would say that in general, on the valuation side, you definitely look at industry comms whether these are public comms or private comms. I think most of the time, private comms might be more important. And so for that stage of the company, right, what kind of valuation do they deserve? And then also we think about how easy is this for them to get the next round of fin financing, maybe based on certain milestones that they can reach. And then, of course, we think about ultimate exit. What would the company look like in a few years' time? Yeah, so those were some of the things that we think about when you think about valuation. Mm. If I were to ask you to elaborate a bit further on the exits piece, how do you think about exits for companies that you have funded? I mean, 
we see the first wave of Southeast Asia startups are the grab, the go-tos, the C's, IPO'd, whether it's in the US, in the local stock exchange, or even I think there's also a lot of acquisitions as well, which we don't talk about because it's, it seems to be not very well covered by mainstream press. Yeah, sure. So I think exists, you know, generally VCs look first and foremost for IPOs, right? So that's where the there's a bigger outcome. I think either IDX or the US stock market, maybe Hong Kong in the future, because I do know that Hong Kong Stock Exchange has a partnership with IDX. Then it will be M&A. And so we do see some of the bigger tech companies acquiring our startups. And I think recently also we saw some interest from China. Um, and then I would say the third option would be secondaries. We do see that as early stage investors, sometimes you can exit through secondary sale, either to incoming investors or sometimes to strategics. If I were to reverse the questions that I've asked just now, what are the red flags that would deter you from investing into a company? Sure. I would say, first and foremost, it would be integrity issues surrounding the founders. Now, we've seen also recently, right, some reports of companies that have stumbled along the way. I would think that we need to do more reference checks and also we need to sort of emphasize the importance of a good corporate governance, the dangers of like just taking shortcuts, right? Mm. Uh, so I think that that is the that is number one red flag for me. I would rather not invest and, you know, miss the opportunity than to have that risk at a founder that I don't trust. Yeah, working with that founder would be a, a kind of recipe for disaster. So can you talk about any interesting companies that AC Ventures have already invested in? Yeah, sure. So recently, I've been looking a lot at the TikTok ecosystem. As you might know, the TikTok shop and the whole e-commerce on TikTok has grown very quickly. And Indonesia is actually one of the largest market right, for them as well, for the e-commerce side of things. Uh, something that we've seen in China, the whole doing live streaming e-commerce growth, the combination of short video and live streaming is, is a new form of e-commerce. It's more interest-based. And it's a very good way for emerging brands to actually be able to reach users and also to communicate with users. So I've invested in a company that is, they provide small home appliance and the supply chain is from China, but the market is in Southeast Asia. And one of the reasons I invested was because I really like the founder. He is formerly from Alibaba and he was Lazada Thailand CEO at one point. I felt that, you know, it'd be good to give him the opportunity to see what he can build in this part of the world. Mm, interesting. So yeah. if I were to switch gears, I want to talk a little bit more about looking at the Indonesia market and even towards the outer Southeast Asia per se. How does the fund see the Indonesia market? Is it similar to how VCs think about China and India where secondary effects only follow large market sizes? What do you mean by secondary effects? So secondary effects, like, for example, if Indonesia starts to have their startup unicorns, they can percolate into, say, your Vietnam, your Philippines. Because one interesting thing that I've been observing, because I've also been an angel investor across the region, is that I'm also starting to see a very fast-growing Vietnam and Philippines market while having an upsize growth in Indonesia. So I chose to be an LP to say even earlier stage fund than yours to oh, help you to spend a good but I was just helping a friend out right but I was thinking a lot more on 
how to think about the space when what happens when you have a Indonesia like China sitting around in Southeast Asia. So that was my question because like in China, your growth is actually all within China. In the probably same, it could maybe extend into Bangladesh. If you know they can resolve their di- diplomatic differences, Pakistan is actually an interesting growth market too. But there's a story for another day. So I'm just thinking along this large market accessibility towards even to the outer Southeast Asia. Yeah, sure, sure. So I think a lot of startups we invest in, they can either grow by expanding to geographically or expanding through product right extension. I would say that at, because we invest mostly in early stage companies, they haven't reached the stage where they are saturated in growth, right? So, I mean, even Akulaku, which I invested was around 2017, you know, they're still growing in Indonesia, right? And now they are extending, having acquired a, a local bank. So they're sending to digital banking and other services. So I think there's still a lot that they can do in Indonesia. And then and then beyond Indonesia, I think everybody's talking about the VIP markets, right? So Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. But I do think that you need to be aware of all the differences, right, in the, in the markets that uh, Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia, actually, we, I see a lot of similarities, both in culture and also in the movement of talent and capital. I think going more like towards Vietnam, and I think Vietnam is kind of like a mini China in a way, and it's not as open as other places. Philippines, more English speaking, and so actually more American, I find the culture, right? So people have to really think through what are the commonalities of the Southeast Asian countries, right? I think, like, for example, recently I'm, I'm investing in a skincare company, mm. also TikTok, fast-growing brand, founders also from China. And I find that skincare is a category that you, you can, like, kind of target the whole of Southeast Asia, right? Because everybody wants, you know, to look like the K-pop or the K-drama mm. <laughs> of actors and actresses. So that's the category that you, is easy. But if you're talking about fintech, then, you know, you need to understand the regulations of each country, right? If you're talking about, say, ad tech, then you need to understand, like, user behavior, right? Is our parents willing to pay? It's willing to learn. You'll find that it's quite different, right? Maybe Vietnam is a better ad tech market than Indonesia, for example. So I would say that just be careful which, you know, market you target next and really, like, try to solve some problems that are underlying. Mm. I, I like the nuances that you explained. I, I didn't know that there's a term called VIP market. So, so maybe that might be the new acronym for Southeast Asia. But there's a follow-up question to this then. How do you guide entrepreneurs to navigate geographic expansion beyond Indonesia where they need to adapt in the future? So it's not probably now, probably in another four to five years, there will probably be one or two breakout companies within your portfolio that will become like a go-to, you know, and then they start to say, okay, we are very good, good in Indonesia. But they are very Bahasa, you know, the language is very specific, not very English-like. And then they start to think about, okay, there is probably the other five other markets out there. How do you guide them in terms of thinking about geographic expansion? Sure, sure. So I would say that what I've seen, right, is some entrepreneurs, they are able to target the whole region very well, riding on some of the big platforms. So for example... D2C brands, uh, right now we see them grow really fast on TikTok as well as Shopee and Lazada. And that's because they don't have to worry so much about all the, you know, nuances of the local markets, right? As long as the product fits the consumer taste, they don't have to worry about regulations and things like that. Or it, they just grow very quickly across the region, right? Every market that TikTok opens, they are, they are there. 
And then there are like instances, which I mentioned, for example, fintech, right? So Akulaku, what they did was they actually got investment from the Sam Commercial Bank, which is help, helping them in Thailand, right? To enter the Thai market. We at AC Ventures, we also have a Malaysia fund that's at a co-GP fund. So we working, you know, there's a GP, co-GP that is a local you know, Malaysian conglomerate, YTL. So some of our companies are working, you know, with them to enter the Malaysian market. So that just gives an example. I think it's good to get some help when you go overseas beyond Indonesia. So whether it's through your having getting an investor or getting a partner or just leveraging some of these big regional platforms, it's good to think about how you want to go about it. So where do you think venture capital is heading in Southeast Asia? I mean, there is a generation of Singaporean funds and they're now in their t- funds already, luckily. And then there is now new funds springing out within the countries like the VIPs, for example. I know Vietnam has funds, Indonesia, like funds like yours, or even I think you also cover Southeast Asia to a certain extent. I think this is a question that I think when I talk to all the VCs that I know, I always ask them this, is it going to be just a local venture capital that will dominate in their respective countries? We have seen that in China already, right? And even to a certain extent, India, because a long, long time ago, I, I, I talked to SAIF Ventures there and they invested in Paytm and that's their 1000x exit on there. So where do you think the VC scene is going to be like for Southeast Asia? Yeah, so our investment thesis is that either you are good in Indonesia and you can build big enough companies or you are a regional. And we do invest in some regional companies as well, like I mentioned. But the other markets are a bit small, at least at this point in time. I would just, is it going to be like VCs in Philippines and Malaysia and whatever? I think it's just a matter of how big you want to be. Sometimes it's difficult to be just in the country because I've just given an example, right? Like e-commerce. If you are a local Vietnamese e-commerce company, you have to fight Shopee and Lazada and TikTok. Do you have the capital to fight them? Do you have a way to stop your users from liking them and gravitating towards them? It's super hard, right? There are certain scale requirements, I would say. That's Mm. what he says is either your Indonesian company, you can be big or you go region. What you're saying is that it's going to be the same even for the VC funds because they follow the trajectory of the companies. I think for the moment, that's what we see. Yeah, so we... On, we like to think of ourselves as a Southeast Asian fund. Like we want to back some regional winners as well. But our core strength is in Indonesia because we can really help people, founders in Indonesia. I think the way some regional funds would be hard to, for them to do the same. Mm. And I'm coming to my traditional closing question. What does great look like for AC Ventures? I would say great would look like we have basically a top performing fund, right? Top quartile, if not top decile. And they were funded some of the best entrepreneurs in this region. So Helen, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insights about Indonesia and also your experiences from China. And there's so much more that I can get you for another few hours to talk about this. But in closing, I have two quick questions. Do you have any recommendations that have inspired you recently? So I know everybody talks about books, but to be honest, I'm a working mom, so I don't have time to read. But I, I was inspired by my daughter, actually, because, you know, when I was talking to her about like this digital avatars from China, how life like they are. And, and then she said to me, she said, she said, mom, what's the point of all this stuff if, you know, we get submerged underwater because our cities are sinking? 
And, <laughs> and I felt like, wow, it is true. We have to think about the next generation, right? We have to think about how do we build more sustainable companies. So, we, so recently I've been looking at a lot at sustainability, looking at, you know, traceability software for agriculture, looking at like forest nature-based solutions, trying to reduce the emissions. And then she asked me another question. She said, mom, that's all great, but how do they make money? <laughs> so it was like also another like very interesting question, right? Like, yes, we want to do good, but we are also uh, here to generate returns, right? Our piece. So it's really like, I think, interesting how like the next wave would be sustainability, but then we need to find the ones that can also, you know, generate financial returns. So that's Sim Similar to the situation I had with my daughter who after coming back from her class on learning how to use AI tools. And she was sitting behind me because at a point during COVID, I was doing my calls with CEOs on, on AI and how AI can help them. And then she just explained it to me the way how I'm explaining it back to, to, the, to, the, to my customers. And then she started asking questions on that. But that is for another day. How do my audience find you? They can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, it's Helen Peihua Wong. Yeah, if you don't remember my Chinese name, just, just search Helen Wong AC Ventures. I'm sure you'll find me. And you can definitely find this podcast through YouTube and every podcast platform out there. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter where we'll summarize the highlights and also give recommendations to what to read and learn from the Southeast Asia market. And of course, Helen, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thank you so much. <laughs>